This Eternal Ethics podcast is dedicated in honor of my dear friends, Jared and Brittany Dubin, dear friends and dedicated listeners of this podcast. And if you want to sponsor a podcast, you could email me at rabbiwolby at gmail.com. We are up to chapter 3, Mishnah 14. Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas Omer, Rabbi Dosa, the son of Harkinas, says, Shena shel shrachris, sleeping of the morning, v'yayin shel tzaharayim, and midday wine, v'sichas hayeladim, and chatter of children, v'yeshivas batek nasiyo shel and sitting in the assembly places of the unlearned, motzian esa adam mina olam. They remove a man from the world. This is actually not the first time we've seen that term, removing a man from the world. And in fact, we're going to see in the next Mishnah, someone ha- loses a portion in the world to come. It is my theory that whenever it says the word world in Perkeavos, it really could have dual meanings. You can understand it as referring to, to this world, the world that we're currently in, the physical world. You could also understand it as a reference to the spiritual world. And all the commentaries, some of them say this way, some say that way, and some say both. So this is the Torah's take on oversleeping, on noontime alcohol, yammering with children or discussing children or childish matters, and having bull sessions with simpletons and or lowlifes. Now, it is interesting that the previous Mishnah, the author of the previous Mishnah was Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. And here, this Mishnah is Rabbi Dosa ben Hartinas. Some have suggested, potentially, that this Rabbi Dosa ben Hartinas is actually the father of the previous author of the Mishnah. And there are many commentators that try to find a thread, a continuity between every Mishnah and the one that follows it. And that has been suggested that the author of the present Mishnah is the father of the author of the previous Mishnah. So Rabbi Dosa ben Hartinas is one of the sages of the Mishnah era, and he is mentioned many times in the Talmud, not as many times as Rabbi Akiva or some of the other uh, great sages, but he's mentioned rather frequently. And there are some amazing stories about him, and I selected three of them to share here because they're very interesting, and also because they kind of open a window to some of the interesting stories and uh, interactions of the sages. The first one is found in the book of Yevamos on page 16a. And uh, there's no way to say the story without giving a little background. Uh, the book of Yevamos deals with, with what is called in English Leverite marriages. Uh, two brothers, one dies without children. The other brother can or should marry his sister-in-law to kind of provide a legacy for the deceased brother. And that's the, that's the, essentially the, the, that's the big picture of what the book talks about, the book of Rivamos. But the book begins with a list of 15 relatives that are related to brother A and are married to brother B. So for example, Ruvain is brother A and he has a daughter. We'll call her Leah. She is married to Shimon, who is brother B. So Shimon married his niece, which is okay by Torah standards. And Shimon also married some other woman. We'll call her 
I don't know, Rachel, but she's not related to uh, to Ruvain or Shimon. She's just a random, not random, she's a lovely woman. But she's not related in any way, familiarly, to, to Ruvain or Shimon. So Shimon married two women. One of them is Leah, his niece, meaning his brother Ruvain's daughter. And the other one, we'll call her Rachel, some random woman. And tragically, Shimon dies without any children. Neither of his wives have children. So now Ru, so now the first brother should marry one of the, one of his sisters-in-law. Problem is, one of them is his daughter. He can't marry his daughter. So the Mishnah, it's the, it's the chapter, the book begins with telling us that not only can't he marry his daughter, of course, for obvious reasons, because she's prohibited to him, he can't either marry Rachel, the other woman, because she was a concubine, she was a co-wife, so to speak, together with his daughter Leah, and therefore, just like he can't marry his daughter Leah, he can't marry his daughter, his other sister-in-law, Rachel. And it's not only his daughter, it gives us 15 different relatives that Ruvain, brother A, would be related to, that Shimon, brother B, would marry, that would disqualify him from doing Levite marriage to either one of the wives. Then it goes on to say, well, if there's a third brother, brother Levi, and he marries not his the daughter, not his niece, but he marries the other one, and then he also has another wife, and then he dies, and well, then he can't marry neither one, and then it goes on forever. That's essentially how the book begins. It's sort of complicated, and there's lots of like mental images we have to make of family trees and the like. So that's how the book begins. Later on, about page 13, 14, we find out that this whole subject that the first major portion of the book deals with, meaning Leverite marriage, when the brother B who dies has two wives, one of them is related to brother A, that brother A cannot marry neither one of them, that is actually subject to a dispute between the Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hillel. For about 100 years, in the turn of the millennium, the Jewish sages were split up into two camps, essentially. The Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hillel, which were founded by Shammai and Hillel. But long after Shammai and Hillel passed, there were two academies. And the reason why is because the Romans made it difficult for all the sages to congregate in one place. So they distributed, they spread them out, and it eventually ended up that there were two academies. And that caused problems because the academies... They didn't reconcile their differences, and therefore there was machlokas. There was disagreement between the academies. Base Hillel, the Academy of Hillel, they're the ones who were of the opinion that Saras Habas, which means literally the co-wife of the daughter, which is again Shimon, brother B's two wives. One of them is the daughter of Ruvain, brother A, and one of them is the co-wife. They're the ones who say that Saras Habas is prohibited. However, Beis Shammai, the Academy of Shammai, they say, no, it's no problem. If your brother dies, God forbid, right, without any children, God forbid, he has two two wives, one of them is your daughter, of course he can't marry her, but the other woman, the other sister-in-law that you're not related to, Rachel in our case, you're allowed to marry her. And according to the Academy of Hillel, well, because you're not allowed to marry her, the original prohibition of she's your sister-in-law is not waived because normally with Leverite marriage, what happens is that you're not allowed to marry your sister-in-law. However, in these specific cases, the Torah says, okay, this prohibition is waived. You're allowed to marry your sister-in-law. But if it's not waived, if the prohibition to marry your sister-in-law is not waived, well, then it's still prohibited. So what would happen according to the Academy of 
of Hillel, if someone were to marry his daughter's co-wife in the event that his brother married to, to his daughter and another woman, he were to marry that woman according to the Academy of Hillel, the child that's produced from that marriage is actually a mamzer, is a bastard. And according to the Academy of Shammai, there's nothing wrong with that child. What a wonderful thing. A child that was born uh, in a Levite marriage, how amazing. And that's the Talmud deals with this problem. How is that possible? We have half of the Jewish world say this child's a bastard. The other half says, no, there's, there's nothing wrong with this child. And what happens, you know, 10 generations later? Could they intermarry with each other or not? And the Talmud deals with a major problem is that uh, there's a prohibition of the Torah to have factionalism amongst the Jewish people. Is there a greater factionalism than this? Don't make different factions. Don't take the Jewish community, tear it apart and say, well, this group believes A, this group believes B. Which is why after the temple is destroyed, the academy in Yavne is the unified academy. Factions of Shammai, factions of Hillel, they're all together under one roof and they're going to solve their differences. So they spend years in the academy of Yavne. Again, all the sages under one roof going through item by item, reconciling the differences, taking votes if they can come to a consensus and determining halacha. They determine that halacha follows the academy of Hillel in almost all cases, with the exception of 18 other cases where the, the, the law follows the academy of Shammai. And therefore, this kind of temporary rift where the academies were split, that was solved and that was reconciled. And you have a 100 years, so to speak, where the academies of Shammai and Hillel diverged. But then they, they came back together. Talmud goes to say, actually, that even though there were disagreements, they would still intermarry. It means the Academy of Shaman Hill would intermarry, provided that they would inform them, well, was there someone, was there at Saras Habas, was there someone in the pedigree of these people that you would find objectionable? Then they would tell them. Similarly, they would share pots and pans. And even though there were differences in, in laws of kosher between the Academy of Shaman and Hillel, they would lend each other pots and pans, but they say, well, you shouldn't probably take this one because according to you, it's a problem. According to me, it's not a problem, etc. Regardless, after the temple's destroyed, there's a major effort to try to bridge the differences, solve the uh, dilemmas, and reconcile the opinions under the one roof of Yavna. One of the elderly sages of the time is the author of Ramishna, Rabbi Dosa Ben-Hartinus. And there was a rumor that he was still holding with the opinion of the Academy of Shammai. He was still telling people, well, if there's two brothers, one of them is married to two women, one of them is the daughter of the other brother, the other bro- and he dies without children, the other brother is allowed to marry, of course, not his daughter, but the other wife, the co-wife. And they're like, oh, is it possible? The great sage, Rabbi Dosa ben Hartinus, he's the one who's giving this opinion. We have to go talk to him. Okay, who's going to go talk to them? That's what the sages are talking about. Who's going to go talk to them? So a, a cadre of some of the greatest sages of the era volunteered for this job. The first one of them is Rabbi Yehoshua. We mentioned him several times, Rabbi Yehoshua He was one of the triumvirate of Yavne, one of its greatest sages. He was also a very savvy, political, diplomatic uh, individual, uh, operator, and he was one of the first ones to volunteer. The next one to volunteer was Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. He was one of the younger sages of, of the time. And when Rabbi Gamliel 
when he was removed, when he was forced to abdicate from being the Nasi, they had to put in the interim Nasi, and that was Rebbe Lezben And we told that story in the past, where um, Rebbe Gamliel, who was the leader of Yavne, who was really marshalling these efforts of trying to create this unity, he was the one who, he took too aggressive a step, and therefore they said, okay, we're deposing you. You're no longer the Nasi. You're no longer like the president or the, uh, the, the, the tantamount to the king. And they had to put in an interim until he kind of reckoned reconciled his ways, and that was Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria. And the third volunteer, of course, maybe the greatest sage of the entire era, Rabbi Akiva. Finally, they traveled to his home, and they get there, and he is already old. He's blind, or mostly blind. He doesn't travel to the academy. They go to his house, and his servant goes to tell Rabbi Dosa Menachias, oh, the sages of Israel came to visit you. This is a whole story. He introduces them. Oh, he sees Rabbi Yeshua, come sit down. He puts him on a bed of gold. He was enormously, inordinately wealthy. He takes uh, the next one, Rabbi Elazar uh, ben Azaria. He's like, wow, you're the son of Azaria? I can't believe Azaria has a, has a son like you. Amazing. What a delight. Praiseworthy is, uh, is, uh, is Azaria to have a son like this. And finally, he asks, well, who's the third sage? Oh, this is Rabbi Akiva, Akiva ben Yosef. You're the famous Rabbi Akiva. I've heard so much about you. Your name echoes and reverberates from one end of the world to the other end of the world. And they all sit down there on these beds of, of gold, and they have a problem. They want to ask him a question. He's, he's like a revered, venerated, legendary sage you're not going to just show, say, hey, we heard you say that Saras Abbas is, pro- is prohibited. They're not going to attack him. So we have to find some way to arrive at the subject circuitously. So they just start, we can't discuss Torah matters. So they talk about Torah matters and eventually they're slowly pivoting the conversation to the topic they really want to talk about. So they manage to get to the subject of Saras Habas, of the co-wife of the daughter of the brother, and asked him what his opinion. He says, well, the halacha is, there's a disagreement between the Academy of Shaman and Hillel, and the halacha follows the Academy of Hillel. And they're like, wait a minute. We heard a rumor that you are of the opinion that the halacha follows Beishamai. So he says, what, do, what did you hear? Did you hear... That Dosa, remember this, this, the sage name is Dosa Ben Hartinas. Did you hear that Dosa said that? Or did you hear that Ben Hartinas said that? Because I have a brother. His name was Yonasan Ben Hartinas. He's a very dangerous guy because he's a tremendous sage, but he's very devilish and he's very dangerous. And you probably heard the rumor about him. And they're like, yeah, we actually did. We didn't hear Dosa. We heard Ben Arkinas. We just assumed it was you. We didn't hear about your brother. We know nothing about your brother. He's like, ooh, you better be careful. Because he is someone who's a, he, he's, he's very dangerous. And he's a student of the Academy of Shammai. He's not into this whole reconciliation project at all. He's still firmly believer in the opinions of the Academy of, of Shammai. And watch out. Because he has 300 proofs that he's right. 300 proofs. Be careful. So they finished the discussion. Okay, I guess it's not he, – he's not the right man. Now we have to worry about his brother. So the Talmud says is that when they when they left, when they departed, 
they split up. Rabbi Yeshua went one way, Rabbi Elazar Nazari went a second way, Rabbi Kiva went a third way. And there's different opinions as to why they split up. One opinion was, is that, so that way they'll more likely to meet the other brother. Because if you spread out, you can find out what the opinion of the other brother is. That's what, that's one reason why. Alternatively, they didn't want to meet the other brother together as a group. Because as a group, they constitute a Sanhedrin, or at least a mini Sanhedrin, a mini court. And what's going to be? They'll meet the brother, and he'll actually prove that they're right. And they don't want to hear it because they don't want to change it. They want Allah to remain in the way of, of, of Beis Hillel, of the Academy of Hillel. They don't want to meet him in a way that they'll have a quorum, that they'll have to make the ruling in accordance with what he says. Regardless, they split up. And of course, who meets him? Rabbi Kiva encounters this devilish brother of Rabbi Dosa ben Artinas, Yonasan ben Hartinus, and he meets him. They start debating. And Rabbi Kiva tells him, well, I heard that you said that Sarasabas is permitted in the, in the, in the, according to the opinion of, of Beis, Beis Shammai. And I heard you have 300 proofs. Let's go. Give me number one. So he presents number one. Of course, Rabbi Kiva, the greatest titan of Torah, of his era, he's able to thwart these proofs, proof number one, proof number two, proof number three, proof 299, proof 300, he totally vanquishes Rabbi Yonasan ben Hartinus in debate, and he wins. And the halacha stands in accordance with the academy of Hillel that this is prohibited. And finally, the Talmud tells us that this episode concludes that Yonasan ben Hartinus tells Rabbi Akiva like a snide comment, or at least it sounds like a snide comment. He says to him, you're the famous Akiva whose name reverberates and echoes from one end of the world to the other one. So he's actually more words that his brother, Dosa said about Rabbi Akiva. You're the famous Rabbi Akiva whose name echoes and reverberates from one end of the world to the other? You should know that you are praiseworthy because you have attained a certain stature. But really, you're nothing better than a shepherd of large livestock. You're nothing better than a shepherd of livestock. Sounds like it's a very harsh critique of Rabbi Akiva, like a kind of an insult. So Rabbi Akiva responds to him, says, no, you're wrong. I'm not even a shepherd of sheep, smaller animals. I mean, there's hierarchy of shepherds, right? There's the shepherd of livestock, ooh, big animals, right? And then there's the shepherd of sheep. It's even a smaller job. Robert he responds to him, I'm not even a shepherd of sheep. So this seems to be like, Robert he was like, no, no, no I'm, I'm, I'm humble. I'm even less important than you think. But the true explanation I heard from my Rebbe, Rabbi Asher Eli, he said that what this means is like this. Well, the Torah... The Torah is the wisdom of God. It's infinite, in effect, because it is God's mind. Rabbi Tiva, he's obviously one of the great sages. He has a tremendous grasp of Torah. But compared to what Torah really is, it's, it's almost nothing because Torah is infinite. No matter how deep you go, it's even deeper. So Rabbi Yonasan ben Artinus is telling him, you're a great sage, but compared to what Torah really is, you're nothing more than a shepherd of livestock. You're nothing. And he responds, no, no, no. He's not responding in humility. He's saying the Torah is even greater. 
my knowledge in comparison to what Torah really is, is more comparable to that of a shepherd of sheep because Torah is even greater. That's the first story that we uh, want, that I wanted to share about Rabbi Dosman Arquinas, which really gives us, again, a, a window into the lives of, of these uh, sages, what they were living for, what the priorities were, 300 proofs back and forth. Uh, Rabbi Tiva's name reverberates from one end of the world to the other, just to give you a little peek into how deep the Talmud is. We know there's an idea called gematria, which is a numerical value. Hebrew letters have an accompanying numerical value. So the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph, which is 1, and then 2, 3, 4, and 10, and then 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100, 100, 200, 300, and 400. The last letter of the Tuf is 400. Here, we're giving a description of Rabbi Akiva, whose name goes Misofa Olavat Sofa, from one end of the world to the other end of the world. One of the commentaries in the back of the Talmud says, well, if you take a look at the gematria of Sofa, Olam, Vat, Sofa, end of the world, from one of the world to the end of the world, it equals, I think, 515, which is the exact amount of times that Rabbi Kiva's name is mentioned in the Talmud. How cool is that? A lot of stuff happening behind the scenes that we have no idea. Anyhow, that's the first story I wanted to share about uh, Rabbi Dosa ben Hartinus. The second story is from the book of Sukkah on page uh, 51b going into 52a. And the Talmud is talking about the effort that they made to renovate, to remodel, to reconfigure the temple to avoid mingling of men and women. So like we said, this is right at, right at the turn where the temple's being destroyed. That's when he's already very advanced in age. So he existed during the time when the temple was extant, obviously. And the Talmud's talking about how they had to try to position you. You have three times a year that thousands, tens of thousands, myriads of Jews are converging on Jerusalem for the festivals, pilgrimage. Well, you have men, you have women. What's going to be? There could be all kinds of intermingling, all kinds of fraternizing that the sages are trying to prevent, trying to create ordinances and safety measures to prevent. So they're trying, so the Thomas talking about, well, what they do, where they put the men, where they put the women to try to avoid problems. So initially, they would have the women inside and the men outside. That didn't work. They tried to flip it around. The men inside, the women outside also didn't work. Finally, they made a special, uh, balcony on top. They put the women on top and that was kind of on, on a different level and that helped. That, that's the Thomas discussion. So the question the Thomas poses is, wait a minute. The dimensions of the temple were divinely ordained. God tells Solomon exactly how to build it. And then, you know, 800 years later or so, the sages say, well, we don't like what it's doing to the mingling and therefore, and therefore we're going to renovate it. Renovating God's temple doesn't seem like it's right. It feels like the dimensions are fixed and you can't do it. You can't change it. The Talmud says, well, they, 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 they found support. They found biblical scriptural support to their rationale for renovating the temple. And I quote a verse in the book of Zechariah. The verse is talking about a eulogy. There's a certain eulogy going on. And it's a, um, utopian eulogy. It's, it's a eulogy for sometime in the future. But the Talmud, but the verse describes 
that every family is, is separate. The eulogy is not done together, men and women together. There's the men on one side, the women on the other side. They're not mingling during the eulogy. And this is talking about in the future. In the future, when there's no Yetzir Hara. And the sages said, well, think about it. There is a eulogy, which is not like, not likely to lead to levity, number one. Second factor, there's no Yetzir Hara. There's no evil inclination, which is, of course, going to minimize the likelihood of any sort of levity. And still, the men and women are being separated. Today, in the temple, it's joy. It's excitement. It's celebratory, which is more likely to lead to levity. And there is a Yitzhara. There's still a inclination. Of course, we're going to lead to levity. All the more so, we should separate the men and the women. That's the Talmud's discussion. That was the rationale. But the Talmud now pivots to talk about, okay, this verse in, this verse in, in Zechariah is talking about some sort of futuristic eulogy. What is the nature of this eulogy? What are they eulogizing? So it brings a dispute. Rabbi Dosa ben Hartinus, the author of our Mishnah, and the rabbis had a dispute. According to one, it is the eulogy of Messiah, the son of Joseph. There's two messiahs. Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David. The first messiah is going to come, and he's going to be involved in some sort of war. The war of Gogumogog, some sort of uh, apocalyptic end of the war, end of the world, but really the beginning of the world kind of conflict. And he is going to be their first Messiah, and he's going to die. And it's just a terrible, devastating thing. Everyone's going to eulogize him and go to mourn over him. That's one opinion. The second opinion is that it's a eulogy over the Yetzirah, over the inclination, over the evil inclination that was slaughtered. And the Talmud says, wait a minute. If you have a great sage, a great leader, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, that person dies. Of course, you should eulogize it. You should mourn, you should cry, you should have some sort of bereavement period for the Messiah ben Joseph. But the Yetzirah, if the Yetzirah is being slaughtered, why are you crying? Why are you mourning? The Talmud tells us that uh, in the future, the Almighty is going to slaughter the Yetzirah and the righteous and the wicked are going to be privy to this slaughtering of the Yetzirah. And everyone's going to be crying. The righteous are going to be crying. And the wicked are going to be crying. And the righteous are going to be crying. And they're going to say, oh, how did we overcome this tremendous mountain? How did we triumph over this formidable adversary? And the wicked are going to cry also. And they're going to say, how did we trip over this strand of here? How did we falter? to this pitiful, pathetic enemy. That's the Talmud. And therefore, that when it's the crying that's going to be, that's describing according to the opinion that says that the crying of the Yitzhak that was killed, that's a reference to the crying of the righteous and the wicked for very different reasons and viewing the enemy in very different ways. The righteous see a formidable mountain that they overcame. The wicked see a strand of hair that they tripped over. Of course, that has a lot of different uh, ways to understand that. What does that mean? How is it possible that the Yetzirah appears to different groups of people to be so different? According to the righteous, it's a, it's a mountain. According to the w- uh, wicked, it is a strand of hair. But an interesting debate that he partook in. And finally, the third story that I wanted to share, another one that we've spoken about in the past, 
is, again, with relation to the post-temple being destroyed efforts of Rabbi Gamaliel and the Academy of Yavne to reconcile, to unify, to bring disparate voices under the same banner. And the Talmud talks about the laws related to deciding when the new month is. So like we've spoken in the past, you have a 29 and a half day lunar cycle. And therefore, every new month can fall either on day 29 or day 30, meaning either day 30 or 31 is the first day of the next month. And the way they used to determine that is they would have witnesses. And the witnesses would come and the witnesses would provide their testimony to say either it's a day early or a day late because it can't be a half a day. You can't have a half a day in a month. It's either 29 a month, either for day 30 is the first day of the next month, or it's a 30-day month. It's a longer month. It's a pregnant month in the words of the Talmud. It's a bigger month. And day 31 is the first day of the next month. That's the story. The Talmud brings all these interesting cases. What happens if witnesses come and say that day 29, meaning the eve of the 29th, they saw the new moon? And therefore, 29 days, that's 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 the previous month, and day 30 is the next month. But then the following night, the night of the 31st, the night of the 30th, everyone looks in the sky and they don't see a moon. They don't see a new moon. Is that good testimony or bad testimony? So according to some, Rabbi Gamliel, it's a good testimony. According to Rabbi Dosa ben Hartinas, he says, how is this possible? Essentially, these people are testifying that a woman had a baby and the next day she's still pregnant. Is that possible? It's not possible. They're testifying that the new month, so to speak, was born, and then the next day, it's not born anymore. It's still it's still pregnant. We're still waiting for it to be born. And Rabbi Yeshua says, well, I actually agree with you. So now we have a rift. We have Rabbi Gamliel, the head of the Sanhedrin. He's ruling day 30 is, is Rosh Chodesh. We have all the other sages, Rabbi Dosh Martinez and Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua, who was the great sage of the area, he's called the Chacham, and he is disagreeing, and he says, no, day 31 is Rosh Chodesh. So, in an effort to try to curb factionalism, in an effort to try to bring the Jews together, Rabbi Gamliel made a decision to enforce his position and to tell Rabbi Yeshua that you had better obey the ruling of the Sanhedrin. It's critical at this juncture of our history that the Sanhedrin not be questioned because, again, that's the role of the time to bring the Jews back together. We've had 100 years of discord, no longer. I command you to come to me on Yom Kippur. That was the month of Tishrei. Essentially, they argue what day was Yom Kippur. I command that you come to me on the day that you consider Yom Kippur, that I consider the day after Yom Kippur, come to me with your staff, with your money pouch, desecrate Yom Kippur in your eyes. You think Yom Kippur is day 11, I say it's day 10. On day 11, you show up to my house, to my academy, with your staff, with your walking staff, and with your money pouch, as if it wasn't Yom Kippur. And he was gravely distressed. And he met Rabbi Akiva, who encouraged him. He met Rabbi Dosa ben Arkinus, who encouraged him, and eventually he capitulated. He gave into the ruling of Sanhedrin. He shows up to Gamliel's house on the day that he considers to be Yom Kippur, and Rabbi Gamliel gets up and kisses him on his forehead, 
He tells him, come in peace, my teacher, my student. You're my teacher because you're more wise than me. You're a greater Torah scholar, but you're my student because you accepted my ruling. And this is the idea that we see in the Talmud that the sages are the ones that are given the responsibility and the right to determine when Rosh Chodesh is, even if they're wrong, technically, doesn't matter. If they rule it, that's when Rosh Chodesh is. And it's almost as if the Talmud says, very interesting, that God, the heavenly course, where they, of course, know exactly where Rosh Chodesh is, they sit around and wait to see what the Sanhedrin determines. This is something that is given to the to the hands of the Jewish people. In fact, the first mitzvah given to the Jews as a nation, and therefore, Rabbi Yeshua has nothing to worry about. He could listen to the ruling of Ramliel and uh, not be concerned at all. Another very interesting episode, emblematic of the time that Rabbi Dosef and Arkinus participated in. And Rabbi Dosef and Arkinus is going to give us the Torah's take on a, a collection of very interesting uh, practices. Number one, sleeping late in the morning. What an unusual thing for the sages to discuss. Noontime wine. I'll have some wine with my lunch. Chatter of children. Discussing or sitting down in the assembly places of the unlearned, of the low lives. A very interesting collection of ideas that collectively he tells us these are the things that extract someone from the world. So all the commentaries have their own way of describing exactly what the problem is. So for example, Rabbi Yonah, he understands it as these activities are things that make us forget what we are really living for, that will cause us to miss out the important things in life. And interestingly, what happens if someone oversleeps? Well, every morning we're supposed to pray. And there's a time to pray. And if you miss that time, if you sleep through it, one you'll miss on a very important thing. And if someone drinks alcohol in the new, in noontime, well, they're going to be drunk during parts of the day that they're supposed to be productive. And they're going to miss out on Torah study. And if someone just sits and Chatters with children, well, they're not thinking about sophisticated things. And if someone spends time with people that are not motivated, that are not focused on accomplishing what we're supposed to accomplish as Jews, well, then they're not going to, they're going to follow suit. Thus, these practices are practices that are cause us to abandon or miss out on the important things of life. And then he explains, he says, in a very strong statement, he says, man was created for the sole purpose of studying Torah and doing mitzvahs. That's the only reason why man was created. Very strong statement. And that's why we have a long life. That's why God gives us life. And when someone says, you know what, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Well, then in effect, they're saying, I'm not not interested in doing what you want me to do, and therefore I'm not interested in you giving me more life. And therefore these things extract someone from the world. He's referring to this world, because this world, the reason why we have life, is study Torah, to do mitzvahs. Very strong statement. And he gives a parable. You have a king that gives a hundred silver coins to one of his servants. And what does the servant do? He takes the coins and throws them into the sh- chucks them into this to the ocean. And now the servant comes back to the king and says, "Well, can I have some more coins? You just took the coins and chucked them out. I'm going to give you more. Of course not. Time, life that we have, it's precious coins." And we're taking them, we're just 
literally throwing them out the window because we're not using it properly. We're wasting time. And therefore, how can we come and ask God for more time? Very strong statement. I remember Rabbi Noah Weinberger, blessed memory, this was his thing. He says, when someone is wasting time, they're literally throwing money out the window of a moving car. And then uh, Rabbi Weinberg gave a, a very dramatic speech. Uh, this was his son, the other Rabbi Weinberg, in, uh, in the yeshiva, and the whole place was shaken by it. Because remember, these are yeshiva people who are all destitute. Somehow they're all destitute. There was one guy who had a business, but everyone else was, you know. So he said, so he wanted to make a message. So he said, so he took out a $100 bill. And he's like, if someone wastes time, I was like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And he takes a $100 bill and he's like, is someone wasting time? It's in effect. And he starts ripping. Ah! I was like, no. He rips it into tiny, tiny pieces. That's what they did. And the whole place was like shaken up. And some guy came and was like, okay, here's $100 for, you know, to make up for because you taught us a very powerful lesson. It was worth $100. And someone else came and collected the pieces and took the pieces. No, he didn't try to, to put them together and go to the bank. <laughs> collected the pieces and then made a card, a laminated card, like you wasting a minute of your life is worse than wasting $100. And he took a little piece of that $100 and like laminated it into the card. I actually still have a card uh, somewhere in my office with all my stuff. A little laminate card not to waste time. Wasting time is way worse than wasting money. Uh, the time is this finite thing that we have. It's the only thing that we really have that's that's finite. That's a gift. that We don't know when it's going to end. That's the greatest opportunity, the golden opportunity that we have. And we have to choose how to use it and choose it wisely. And here, and here these are things that to us, you know, they sound kind of benign. Well, what's so wrong with having? Sleeping in a little bit doesn't sleep so good for you. Uh, a little bit of alcohol, you know, to help get through the day. What's so bad about that? Chattering with children? Of course, we should talk to our children. Right? So, of course, it means it means talking in excess, you know, spending time all day talking to children or talking about childish things, spending time, wasting time with people. Again, these are things that we don't view as being terrible. We don't. Th- th- these are very benign in our eyes. And they are benign in our eyes because they're not evil things. But he's trying to awaken us to a different point. The point that he's trying to to impress upon us is that if you just think about what, what it is, you have a gift from God. You're given the gift for God for a purpose. You're not using that for the right purpose. And he, again, he's trying to get our attention. He's ripping up the $100 bill in front of us. He's trying to get our attention and he's telling us, these are things that are extracting you from the world. You're here for a purpose. And you know that everyone knows that we're here for a purpose and we should be – of course, we should be doing more important stuff. But come on, a little – does it really hurt you? Does it really matter? Is it so important? And he's trying to say, yes, it is. It's a very powerful, uh, evocative lesson that we hear from uh, from this great sage that these are things that are going to – that are very important because we have time. We have opportunity. We have gifts. It's, it's silver coins from God and we're throwing them out the window and we can't come ask for more. We have to use the opportunities that we have in our lives. These are golden opportunities. So, uh, the Maharal, one of the commentaries, he, he, he kind of breaks it down into four categories. These four things really describe our existence, our physical existence in the four different ways. There's the, uh, the bodily, the physical existence. There's this, you know, the psychological existence, our psyche. There's our intellectual existence, and then there's our social existence. And he says each one of these areas, each one of these four things described 
by the Mishnah, by Rabdos Manarkinas, refer to one of these four aspects of our life. When someone's sleeping, well, then their body is entirely inactive. And their, their body is not being used, not being marshaled for the proper use that really it was given to. Or when someone's oversleeping. A wine in the afternoon, well, he says that refers to someone's psychological state. That the wine affects their psychological state and it, it, it impairs their using their psychological state for the proper use. Uh, when someone is fraternizing sillily with children, it's not focusing a matter of the intellect. And when someone is um, having a bull session, hanging out with people of low repute, then they're not harnessing their social opportunities of life to to grow. So I want to talk about these four areas uh, that he's described because it's kind of like a double-edged sword. You know, sleep, for example. The Ramam advises to sleep eight hours a day. And he says that's a mitzvah because you're attending to your body. And how does that not conflict here? Here we see that oversleeping takes you out of out of this world. It's a terrible thing. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? It's kind of that thing, like we said, it's these these four stuff, these four items are not things that are definitely bad. But they're bad in a context if that becomes your identity. If that becomes not facilitatory, but it becomes something which is an end goal unto itself. That's why it says it doesn't say sleeping, it's just sleeping in the morning, oversleeping. When someone oversleeps, they're not part of society. Sleep becomes their identity. It's not something that they do to facilitate something else. Rather, it's something that they do because they want to do it. That's re- really where the problem is. So the Talmud, for example, tells us that uh, sleep is a 60th of death, which means there's a certain degree that someone is, is removed. You know, your mind is still active when you're sleeping. Maybe you don't know that, but it's true. Your mind's always active. The question is, what is it active with? Is it active with positive, constructive, intellectual thoughts, or is it active with other fantastical, imaginative stuff? Are you at the reins of your intellect, or is some other thing? That's a separate equation. But when someone's sleeping, their body is inactive. And to to a degree, the Talmud could say, well, it's, it's a certain measure. It's a one and a half percent of death. And later on, we're going to find that Torah is acquired with minimizing sleep. Because, again, there's only 24 hours in a day and no technology has found a way to elongate that. And some portion of that is going to be taken up with sleep and whatever portion is taken up with sleep cannot be used for other things. The Talmud tells us how King David was very careful not to, not to sleep too much. He wouldn't sleep for more than 30 minutes because 30 minutes is like you could get into REM sleep. So you would just take those little naps, those little power naps as a way to kind of just re-energize, to be able to continue studying Torah. And there are people still today who do this. I'm not advising this. When we get to the level where we love Torah study so much that we can't sleep, we'll talk. But uh, the Gona Vilna, for example, would sleep four times a day for a grand total of two hours, 29, 29, 29, 29, 29 minutes. Again, with the same desire to not have the deep sleep, to not ever be removed from life, which is the opportunity to 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 uh to study. So on one hand we're told you gotta you gotta be healthy. You gotta have, you know, maybe even eight hours of sleep. And then I read all these studies that talk about how important it is to sleep and how it's like the best thing for your health. And like the 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 three pillars of good health is diet, exercise, and of course sleep. And how if you could make a pill that would give you all the benefits of sleep, like it would really solve all your problems. You'll think better and you'll Everything and, and it's free. You know, it's over the counter. 
maybe over the bed, right? Maybe over the counter. But it's it's like free and it you don't need a prescription and that's really all you need to do to, to affect your health in, in, in a positive way. So on one hand, sleep is something that's very important. On the other hand, we say that oversleeping could kind of be a negative thing. So for example, you know, when someone oversleeps, they actually makes them more tired. There's a certain point where sleep is ideal. Let's say if it's seven hours or eight hours, but you sleep more than that, it actually makes you tired, ironically. It's counterintuitive that you sleep too much and then actually you, you're a little drowsy. Uh, and when someone's living like that, they're always oversleeping in the morning, then they're not, they're not part of society. So for example, when I was, uh, a, uh, a teen, I, I may or may not have had a proclivity for oversleeping, but I did, uh, my, one of my, my uncle, who is a, uh, a great rabbi in, in New York. So I was actually boarding by his house and he told me a line. He said, there's a, a prayer that we say at the end of, of completion. When you finish a book of Talmud, there's a prayer that you say. And the prayer that you say contrasts the to- people who study Torah versus everyone else. And it says, we wake up and they wake up early. We wake up to study Torah and they wake up for all kinds of other stuff. And we toil and they toil. We toil and get reward. They toil and don't get reward, right? We, we, we work to do this and they work to do that. That's kind of contrasting Torah studies, people study Torah with other people. So his question that he asks, he says, well, it says we wake up and they wake up. What, what about the people that don't wake up? They just, they just sleep in. He says, well, those people, they're, they're a different level. They're out of society. They're not part of society. They're not part of constructive people. The question is, people who are constructive, are they constructive on, on this way or that way? But people who oversleep, people who wake up late, people who don't fulfill this, uh, this instruction, well, they're, they're kind of on a different, on a different, uh, realm. So this is just an idea. I think it's the first idea here. The idea of sleep is that sleep is a wonderful thing. It's a very critical component of good health. Find out how much hours you need to sleep. Enjoy them. Sleep deeply. But also remember, it's there to facilitate your life. It's not a goal. So what about what about wine? So I personally, I, I don't enjoy wine. I don't enjoy any alcohol. I don't know why. I think I'm, I might be allergic to sulfites or something like that. Um, I don't enjoy it. I don't understand the appeal. Uh, I've gotten drunk exactly, I think, twice, both of them on Purim, when it's a message to get drunk. <laughs> and I'm apparently a very sloppy drunk. Um uh, but my wife is still traumatized from the first time I got drunk. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, justifiably, I may add. Um, so this is one of the things that it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, really, it doesn't entice me at all. For, but from what I gather, people really love it. And, uh, it's something which is very delightful and something that people enjoy. And again, like sleep, we see, again, these, these competing teachings from our sages. So there's verses that talk about how how wonderful wine is, and wine opens up vistas of, of of knowledge, and you're supposed to be happy. So on Shabbos you drink wine, and on festivals you drink wine. There's a mitzvah to drink wine on festivals. On the other hand, we find in the Talmud is that the reason why God invented wine is for two reasons: a to console mourners, and b to reward the wicked, because wicked people. Because wicked people, they do a few mitzvos and they need to be rewarded, and they get rewarded with drinking fine wine. That's the, that's the Talmud says. So again, so so which is it? Is it a good thing that opens up new vistas? Is it a bad thing because it's just someone eating up all their reward here? 
it seems again like we get conflicting messages. And but I would point out is that here it says it doesn't say wine in general. It says wine at a certain time, certain kinds. There's different kinds of wine. Wine in the evening is different than wine in the afternoon. And uh, the Rambam has in that uh, same section where he talks about health, he talks about uh, diet and things like that. So he has his uh, uh, riff with uh, with wine, and he says that someone should only drink wine in middle of a meal, and only enough to kind of facilitate the meal to go smoothly. But if someone drinks on their own to the degree they want to get drunk, well, then they're a sinner and they're uh, they're um, they're disgusting. They lose their wisdom. So he kind of really denigrates someone who drinks wine for different purposes. Again, so there's a good way to drink wine. There's a bad way to drink wine. And here in the afternoon, says the Rama, why is afternoon wine problematic? Because that makes you drunk. Because you're just drinking wine with no meal. It's not accompanying your meal. That's how he understands it. That afternoon wine means just wine. Someone just drinking wine uh, from the bottle, not in the form of meals. It seems to imply that if someone's having a lunch with a glass of wine, not a problem at all. But again, yeah, so the, the Ramam is understanding the, this wine as referring to a liquid lunch, not one as referring to a wine together with food because that doesn't make you drunk and that's not a problem. So so w- what is exactly the problem with, with wine? So the Maharal says something very fascinating. He says, this is going to affect your psychological state. But we think of wine as impairing your intellectual state. He understands it as wine impairing your psychological state. He says, well, it made you happy. What's, what's wrong with being happy? He explains that the, that the f- happiness, the emotions, the feelings are severed from the intellect. The way he understands it is that true joy is an expression of something that you know, that you feel that you are, that you become. When someone has the wine to induce the joy, it's artificial. It's, it's not real and it's not you're, – you're corrupting or you're interrupting at least, developing authentic feelings. So for example, the Talmud tells us that actually it's a verse we'll see later on uh, that if someone is drunk, they can't walk into the temple or the Mishkan. What's wrong with being a little tipsy walking into the tabernacle? So maybe we would say, well, you don't have proper reverence. No. So one of the commentaries tell us, tells us is that the real problem is, is that when someone walks into the temple, they have to be joyous. But why are they joyous? If someone is joyous because of the alcohol, they're not joyous because of the temple. They're not joyous about that. They're joyous because of artificial means. And that's the problem. The problem is you want to have authentic feelings of joys, of joy, not inauthentic or artificial or chemical feelings of joy based upon what you, what you put into your body. So that's uh, maybe another idea uh, to understand what this means or what the objection here is. I think there's one point of like, hey, if someone gets drunk, of course, they're not they're not useful at all. They have to have eight hours to sober up before they can be productive in any way. Besides for Winston Churchill, who was a very productive drunkard. <laughs> so Winston Churchill has a – he has a stamp of approval, right? Different di- different class, different class of, of human. But for everyone else – if someone is drunk, they're not productive. But also, here we see that there's another uh, sensitivity here where the joy that results from the experience should be as authentic as possible. Maybe we could argue that if someone is joyous already and they want to kind of add a chemical 
component to it, that wouldn't be a problem. But if someone is solely joyous because of the alcohol, again, those people who have a dependency, they're depressed when they don't have the it's not, it's not, they're not that happy people. They're happy when they drink or when they take any sort of, of chemical uh, stimulant or any sort of narcotic or anything like that. They're happy, but that's, that's not real because you take that away, you pull away the, the, the chemical, they're miserable and they start drinking turpentine, right? It, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a real genuine feeling of joy. That's what we want to avoid. Whereas if someone's, let's say, joyous because it's the festival. And they're studying Torah, and and they're they're involved with other people, and they're they're and they want to kind of add another little element to it. Uh, if the wine is going to enhance the positive feeling, the positive experience that is already present, e- either the way the Ram says it's together with the meal, it's not its own focus. Alternatively, it's 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 there to contribute together with something else. Someone studies Torah. And is involved in the festival and is having a festive meal and wants to add the wine. I think that would be the kind of the flip side. But again, this is a very, it's a very delicate, subtle message that we're being conveyed here because all these things are things that we view as being not so bad. And his point is that yes, and they're not so bad and they're even good in certain contexts. But if taken to an extreme, if not done in moderation, if done as a total focus, as a goal, that's a problem. Finally, uh, we have the last two talking about childish things or fraternizing with children, spending times with, 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 with low lives. Uh, I would say that when someone is dealing with things that are totally disconnected to reality, they are essentially putting their brain to sleep. They're putting their brain on the back burner. I would say included in this category is any time that someone wastes their brain power on nonsense and they treat it as if it was real. So um, some things that I am personally guilty of. Uh, in Yeshiva, we used to have discussions about like Harry Potter fan, fan theorist theories before we, before all our theories were confirmed with the last book. Uh, uh, or people talking about sports, you know, I was very into sports. But it, it's, it's, really, it's really ridiculous. If you just kind of zoom out and try to describe to an alien what this is, adults – Watching other adults playing a child's game and getting very, very worked up about it and trying to model themselves and try to – it's really silly. It's childish. And people who make it a focus, make it a goal, again, they're withdrawing themselves from the world. This world is meant to, to use your superpower, your intellect for positive constructive things, not to watch other people play catch and, you know, and get paid hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. It's really, it's a silly thing if we, if we kind of strip out all of our understandings and perspectives of, of, of the matter. It's really childish things and we're really wasting the, the, the precious time that we have here. And maybe 90% or 99% of, of, of society are guilty to a certain degree of, of these things of too much immersion. In, in childish, in childish activities. Now again, what exactly is the cutoff? Where is it becoming a little bit too dangerous on the flip side? Where someone is, you know, becoming a robot and they're not involved with society. They can't talk about politics or about sports because they don't know anything about, oh, I don't, I, I, I don't know who's the president. I don't know. Never heard of him. All right. Actually, um, I, I'm envious a little bit of my wife because she literally knows nothing about politics. Nothing. And she she knows who the president is, but she doesn't know who the vice president is, and she's not interested in it. 
What, like, what an amazing thing. Like, think about how many amazing companies, amazing products, amazing works of literature could have been produced if society had focused the past three years, let's say, on pr- productive, constructive things as opposed to politics. Just take that out of our lives and say, okay, it doesn't really matter. I know it matters. We should vote. We should be good citizens. I know, I know, I know, I know. But still, all this back and forth and all the minutiae, all the daily squabbling, it really doesn't matter. Let's focus on things that are productive. That's what he's telling us to do. It doesn't mean to become a hermit. It doesn't mean to 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 to, to be withdrawn from everything. It doesn't mean to not have any escapes. It means to, to to understand what is your goal in life, what's your true objective, what are you doing to achieve that objective, and realize that those other things are detracting. Maybe it's a good detraction because it's a distraction, and therefore it's okay because it's going to facilitate your end goal. But if that becomes your life, that becomes your goal. That's what he's trying. That, that is what, uh, what he's warning us against. Someone who does that takes themselves out of their lives. And I would add, you look at the last thing that he warns us about: sitting in places of assembly of the unlearned. Place of assembly, the unlearned people have an assembly. What does it mean? To, what does it mean that the unlearned people have an assembly? They get together. Why, why do they get together to discuss something? To discuss what? Not matters of learned stuff. That's the problem. It's not to discuss it a little bit. It's not to have an escape. It's not to have a time, a breather. It's to make it a goal, to make a place where you assemble. This is a venue dedicated for wasting time, wasting life, taking the precious silver coins that God gives us and chucking them out. That's the problem. Not when it's an escape, not when it's a way to have uh, to refresh your mind, not when it's a way to, you know, a little bit. That's that, that that's precisely the point of this entire Mishnah. These things are all good things in moderation and done as a, an aid towards a goal. The second they become things that you congregate to do that, the second becomes the point of living, that's when you take yourself out of the world. I, I would say I think that everyone here could take something out of this lesson. Like this is something for everyone and and, and it makes sense. But again, he's trying to exhort us to try to he's trying to exhort us to live a more robust life, a more meaningful life, a more intellectual life, a more spiritually fulfilling life. That's what he wants. That, that's what he wants us. That's what we want from ourselves. And you know, we get drawn after all these things because they're easier, because they're exciting, because they're really shiny, because they're in escape. But there's a tendency to over to overplay that, or to to be, to be overly involved in that, and then we lose out on some opportunities.